Hello and welcome to the Bicon podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicon here in Jerusalem. This is a recording of a conversation from Thursday the 25th of March to discuss the results of the Israeli election. Okay, Luke, thank you very much indeed for your introduction and thank you everybody for joining us this afternoon. So if I first kind of try and make a little bit of order with what's going on, because we saw the results, we saw the exit polls come through on Tuesday night during the evening, which gave Netanyahu and his bloc a one seat advantage. And then over the night, we saw that change. And right now it's kind of shifted the other way to one vote in favour of the uh, anti-Netanyahu bloc. Uh, before I answer kind of winners and losers, just to make order of why this is so prolonged in terms of the, uh, the count, um, and there are three main reasons. One is in small number of the uh, voting booths, there was a technical problem, so they went back for a recount. The other issue, which was more than usual in this case, is we have a phenomenon called double ballots. Everyone votes in their own voting booth very near to their house, except usually um, IDF, uh, IDF personnel and, uh, and foreign diplomats. This time, those double, double envelopes were extended to people that were suffering from coronavirus, either ill or in, uh, or in um, isolation, as well as people in, in hospitals and, uh, and, and, and prisoners as well. So this increased to about, uh, this in- increased to about uh, close to half a million people who were voting in this way. And only today have they begun to, uh, to make those counts. And a third issue, which we're still getting through this afternoon and this evening, is this kind of convoluted agreement. After they've counted all the votes, they then dismiss everyone that didn't make it over the 3.25 threshold, and everything else is then divided into 120. Um, it won't be an exact number. The, the numbers then left over are what's called in the surplus vote agreement that certain parties will come together to combine forces to see if there is the marginal extra vote. So although we're at 99% of the vote, there's still a chance that until tomorrow morning, there will be some slight changes. And because we're dealing with such a very closely closely run race, those fine changes at the end could be exceptionally significant. Um, Ronnie, perhaps at this stage, we can just show people kind of where we're, the, the, the graph of where we are at this stage, so people can understand the, ra- the, 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 the range of, of numbers and how the parties are, are doing, as we said, with 99 percent of the votes uh, counted. So, so that's, uh, we can leave that on the screen for a moment just for people to, uh, to digest. But in terms of kind of, of the, the winners and losers, one of the, uh, one of the best, biggest winners, I think, from this campaign has been the Arabs, Arab communities, Arab civil society as a whole. And I'm sure as we get into that, I'll explain why that is. But I think for the first time, they are being considered by almost all parties, and I say almost for all parties across the political spectrum, as legitimate partners, and that's a very significant moment um, in Israeli in Israeli politics. And we can we can get into that a little bit later. Um, ostensibly, of course, the Likud is far and away the um, the largest party, the only one with uh, with uh, with uh, with. Uh, well, I was going to say there's two parties with double digits, but over over 20 seats and over 30, the Likud is the only one. So ostensibly, the the, the branding of Likud and Netanyahu has held up, but as we'll soon discuss, it may not be enough for him to form the next uh, the next government. Um, there was also successes, I suppose, on the extremes, both with the uh, the emergence of the religious Zionists, the hard hard extreme right party that it was backed and supported by Netanyahu, and then on the other side of the spectrum, the Ram Islamists as well broke a lot. A lot of people weren't expecting them to get over the threshold. They also made it into parliament on their own run after they dispatched themselves and separated away from the other three parties within within the joint list. 
Um, and finally, I think it's fair to give a little bit of credit to the uh, to the centre left. A lot of these parties, if we if you've heard other bike on briefings and other read others, that there were the parties teetering on the electoral threshold according to the polls. But both Labour is resurgent, Merits is strong, and to everyone's surprise. Blue and white as well, that were considered a, a spent political force, are also backed with a respectable eight seats. So that's kind of the uh, the overview, and we can get into some more details. I guess the next thing that I, I would ask is, are we heading for a fifth one of these? Is, is there any viable coalition that could uh, uh, emerge out of all this fragmentation? Or is there a chance uh, that the, this interminable series of elections carries on into its its fifth episode right well this is the, this is the question that we're all uh, we're, we're all pondering and as i said i'll answer this again with the with the caveat that we're still waiting for the final final results that may shift the balance slightly um ronnie perhaps you could bring up the second slide just as, a, as an illustration to, to help people as we talk this as we talk this through um, what we should focus on at this stage with three days two days after the election is not necessarily about who can form who will form the government, but it's about at this stage about getting the recommendation from the president to be able to form the uh, the next the, the next government to be and and so the question is who will be tasked to form the next government? Um, so if you look on the right hand side, it's very clear Netanyahu has kind of his natural partners, and it's and it's quite clear that they have the 52 seats, a solid 52 seats, and then if they add Yamina, then of the uh, which is Naftali Bennett's party who at the moment is being very careful and circumspect. He's, when he's been asked in any Israeli media interviews in the last 48 hours, he says he will do the right thing for the, for the, for the people of Israel, for the state of Israel. He wants to present himself as very statesmanlike and presentable, and he's not committing to either camp. But we understood that if Netanyahu, if there was one more seat on the Netanyahu block, and, uh, and sorry, two more seats now they need because they're 59 together, if they were, to, if they were able to get to 61, then Yamina would clearly, because of their ideological commitments to the uh, to the kind of the authentic right wing, then they would go with that. Uh, they would go with Netanyahu. As it is, I've put the we put those uh, those, those uh, perforated lines between him and Netanyahu because if he doesn't go, if, if Netanyahu isn't given the opportunity to go first by the president, then Yamina be, moves back into the center column and could potentially be a future partner in a Lapid government. Um, and we can talk about that later as well. For the Lapid side, he's got the solid support from, uh, from obviously from his own party, from Israel Beitena, who said they would commit themselves to whoever is the largest party within the uh, within the non-Netanyahu faction. Um, and uh, and Blue and White are expected to support them as well, even though there is personal animosity between Benny Gantz and uh, and and Yair Lapid. He will only back uh, Yeshatid because of his bad experience serving under Netanyahu. Similarly, Labour and Meretz and the joint list have all committed also to be backing uh, to, to be to be backing Lapid. So that takes them to a solid 51. So if you like the 51, the 51 versus 52 is the uh, is is other other solid blocks within this. And uh, just this just this afternoon or within an hour ago, um, Gidon Saar, who probably a, was was slightly disappointed with his turnout of only six seats. Has also now committed that uh, in the in the event of uh, of non Netanyahu flock, he will put his ego to the side, and I, he says that in the context that he himself saw himself as a prime ministerial candidate. But with six seats, there's no way that one can present themselves as a prime ministerial candidate. 
He's almost certain to, uh, to, back, to back Lapid as well, which takes them to 57. And then the question mark, the huge question mark, which again, we will talk about, I'm sure soon, is where is what will, what will Ram do? Okay. Um, the, next, if we can have a, a, a view, um, Richard, on um, Netanyahu and where he personally goes from here. So uh, let's assume that, that he does emerge out of these coalition no negotiations as, as the PM again. He isn't going to be the Prime Minister of Israel forever. I mean, it might feel like he has been, but he's not, he's not the forever Prime Minister. He, he, he will retire at some point. Some people are saying he could retire um, to the presidency to, to be actually be the head of state. Um, given what's happened in this election, who are who are the runners and riders that could be the next prime minister of Israel when a, when a vacancy emerges? Okay, so again, before I answer that directly, let me just give a a, a very interesting dynamic which is going on parallel to the formation of any government or even parallel to the uh, to the process of the president choosing, and that's what's going to happen in the Knesset in two weeks' time. The, the new Knesset will be will be sworn in. Now, if and if you remember the last the last slide, if there is enough um, opposition to a Netanyahu government, if they have 61 votes, 61 hands in the Knesset, regardless of whether they can form a cohesive government, which is a separate question. But if they can unite on other issues, then they can perform certain parliamentary um, acts. The first one of which would be to replace the speaker. This was, if you remember, the speaker is currently Yariv Levin from the Likud party. It was seen as a very um, bad basic strategic mistake by Benny Gantz after the last election that gave that role up to uh, to Likud, Likud and Kedav, Kedav, instead of maintaining it because whoever is the speaker of the house controls the legislative agenda and once you control the legislative agenda you can then appoint all the uh, the, the the house select committees and you can divide that up amongst the people that voted for the new speaker and kind of satisfy part of their agendas whoever is whoever is particularly concerned about education or finance or foreign affairs, et cetera, and, and share that share that around. You also build up trust, crucially, amongst those partners. And then, and this is to answer your question, there is the potential for them to pass legislation that would ban someone under an indictment from, uh, from, from serving as prime minister. And that can be done in parallel to the process of what's happening with the president and choosing the prime minister, if the Knesset were able to pass such legislation. So that is, a, the, the, there were some opposition parties that tried to do this last time round and were then thwarted when, uh, when Benny Gantz uh, gave up that, uh, that role. So that's a scenario that, uh, that, that's, that's real. If we talk about kind of specifically kind of a post-Netanyahu world and who are the, who are the, who are the kind of the lead, leading candidates, well, it's clearly right now that Lapid is in the, is in the front seat. First of all, he ran a very respectable campaign, talking only about kind of uh, very reasonable issues about uh, transparency and having a sane government. He deliberately did not try too much to kind of bite into the other centre-left parties and not cannibalise them, as we've seen other large parties do in the past. So allowed kind of the uh, his, his his natural alliances as well to to survive. And as, as we saw and we discussed, um, blue and white and Labour merits. They all did. They all did better than than the polls were were expecting. So Lapid is very well positioned as a as a as the potential uh, successor. After that, you have to look at the other personalities, perhaps on the right as well. Naftali Bennett, even though he only has seven seats, and this is part of his dilemma of which way he goes, because he sees himself 
as a future successor inheritor of the uh, of the right wing um, uh, mantle and to and, and to succeed Netanyahu. And then you've got a kind of a whole range of characters within the Likud. Um, Saar would have considered himself a leading candidate in that role as well. He may well have burned his bridges and will be difficult to make it back to the Likud unless something uh, surprising and uh, radically different from what he's saying now uh, transpires. And then you've got other kind of um, senior veteran Likudniks like Israel Katz, who served as foreign minister and the finance minister in the, la in the, last, in the last government, and, uh, and Yuli Edelstein as well, who was a former speaker and now serving as health minister and number two in the Likud party, could also be, uh, could also be, could also be a potential candidate for the future. Um, what's Benny Gantz's situation now? Is he still a kind of big player? Because... People would at one stage it looked like he wouldn't even get back in the in the Knesset, and the party would fall below the threshold. But he's really done quite a bit better than expected, and there's still that technicality of the rotation deal, isn't there? Where that that hasn't been um, uh, whatever what undealt, whatever the phrase is for ending a ending a deal. So theoretically, isn't he due to become prime minister in November? Well. Theoretically, if there is still a stalemate, but the uh, the sequencing of the next of it, if if there is a stalemate this time round and a fifth government, a fifth election, um, it's not clear whether the sequencing will be able to done to be done before that November date. So whether that will ever will ever kick in. So we should kind of park that for the side. In the more immediate future, first of all, he definitely feels vindicated that he served. I mean, as a as, as a defense barrier to all the, what the Likud and the Netanyahu supporters were planning or trying to do and to disrupt uh, Netanyahu's trial and uh, and change things within the uh, the, uh, the judiciary in a, in a broad sense. He's actually acting justice minister right now. And this is going to come to a head next week. Um, in Israel, you are allowed to serve as a second ministerial portfolio and a temporary, and a temporary uh, facility for, uh, for three months. And that runs out on April the 1st. And effectively, April the 1st, Israel will be left without a justice minister. Um, and that will go also to, uh, to be appealed in the, in the courts to have it challenged. Um, he very much wants to maintain that role. He's not suggesting he gives up defence minister. He wants to keep both, both roles. And in the current transitional government, of which is still, as you correctly say, within the framework of the last election, it has to be an agreement between him, him and Netanyahu. But that's something that he's very much, uh, very, very much sticking to. There is some kind of some some I would say wild speculation that if you look at the political map and if, if Netanyahu, because for so many people the uh, religious Zionist party is kind of beyond the pale and abhorrent, that Netanyahu could theoretically appeal to the better senses of someone like Benny Gantz or Gidon Saab, by the way, and say, listen, if you don't want Ben Gvir and the and the like of Jewish power in the government, then you need to come across break party lines and come across and join me as well and could be kind of again tempted or given the uh, the motivation by certain uh, portfolios i think that's an unlikely scenario and certainly ben and has had a very bad experience working under netanyahu so it's unlikely to happen but still the fact that he's he is there he's still serving as defense minister and acting justice minister at least for the next few days puts him in a significant player as a player at least in the short term okay um, can you tell us a bit about about Ram? Why why is a, an Islamist party, which you know ideologically is committed to um, uh, a one state solution and you know kind of Israel not existing anymore, 
why why are they hinting that they would even consider joining a Netanyahu government and and why would Netanyahu be open to 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 that I, I, idea? I mean, it, it seems like the weirdest coalition ever. You're, I mean, everything you say is correct. It is absolutely uh, bizarre, even for the even for the Israeli politics standards. But let me give a little bit of background and try and uh, explain it. First of all, to need to understand who their leader Mansour Abbas is, and that he's kind of an archetype against the the, the traditional uh, profile of the career um, Israeli uh, Israeli Arab politician. Um, he's been much maligned because of that um, by kind of the traditional leaders, people like Ahmed Tibi and Ayman Oda. They never thought that he would really go through with his threat um, to, to leave the joint list. The joint list is made up of three separate factions. It was four. And Mansour Abbas took his Islamist party outside of it. And everyone wrote them off that they would never get over the, uh, the threshold. He's a, he's a dentist by profession. He only entered politics uh, two, or, two or three years ago. And he basically comes and why he has caused kind of the antagonism within the, uh, the Israeli Arab uh, political framework is because he said, listen, you, you Israeli Arab politi politicians, you have failed. You have historically failed at every time. You have aligned yourself with the Israeli left and, and, you, have, and you have remained on the sidelines of the, uh, of the opposition since you were created. And so he says something very different, that he wants to approach every issue in what is of interest to his constituency. Where can he best serve the interests of, 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 the, uh, of the Israeli Arab public? And it's going to be very pragmatic, and I would even say transactional in that approach. If you can give me something, I'll give you something back. And that's, by the way, is an approach that, that if, it's, if it sounds familiar to people, it's very reminiscent of Netanyahu's approach as well. So as a result of that, over the last year or so, there have been two or three examples where Ram, his party, um, and Likud have worked together on certain votes. This included um, voting for the, uh, the state controller. This can, can included voting against the opposition bill to start a, a, a commission of inquiry into the uh, into the, the uh, what's referred to as the submarines affair, and um, and and even on the vote when it came to uh, disbanding the Knesset, they absented themselves along with kind of the good request and didn't vote along with the opposition. So there is plenty of background there. But what does he really want? What is he looking for? He's looking to improve the, uh, the 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 lives of the of, of the Israeli Arab population. He's looking a big a big issue at the moment is to cut the issue of crime and honor killings within the uh, within the within the uh, the Arab society. He's looking for investment in society, jobs, um, 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 re reform in the in, in the land laws and in their ability to uh, to build and ex build houses and extend their communities. And so this is he can really if if he if he's working on a transactional basis. Then, then, then he can really work with any of the Israeli political leaders. And this is why he was being courted primarily by the Likud. By the way, yesterday it was announced that he also had, has had private meetings with Lapid. But if you remember and you take yourselves back to a year ago in Israeli politics, even the announcement that uh, these Islamists are in negotiation with, with Lapid would have caused fury amongst the Likud and the right wing. But how dare you kind of even consider talking to these, these people? And now you hit, it's kind of met with a shrug. And, and obviously, I mean, so, so it should be that, that finally they're being recognized into kind of main, mainstream Israeli, Israeli society. Um, and I'll just flag up another couple of issues of, of kind of where Mansour Abbas is with the Israeli public against the traditional positions of the, of 
of the joint list. The joint list have often been criticized for putting Palestinian rights ahead of the issues of, uh, of the Israeli Arab public, and they're very much for integration within is Israeli society and against that kind of that Palestinian dominated uh, issues. They are for, as I said before, influence, that they're looking if, 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 it, if this is what it takes to get into bed with, with mainstream Israeli Zionist parties, they'll do that because better to do that and actually have real effect on budgets and government policy than, uh, than, than stay on the opposition. Um, and a third word, we, we, we may have discussed this before, you and I and others on this call as well, but the significance of the Abraham Accord, really, and again, if you take the, um, the essence of what Abraham as a figure means, as the, as the father figure of all monotheistic faiths, is a fantastic foundation to build better relations and understanding, obviously in the context of the peace process with Israel and the Gulf, but it also relates domestically as well, that suddenly you see the Arab not as the other, but as a potential partner as coming from, a, from the same history and, uh, and, and, back, and background as you. And that in, in itself imbues better understanding and, uh, and can, and can bring, bring work together. Now, this is, this is, this is all great. But the big button, you mentioned it in your, in your question, we are still dealing with an Islamist party. This is kind of the representative of the, uh, of the Muslim Brotherhood in, his, in, Israeli, in Israeli politics. So people are speculating, what happens if they join a government and a month later, Israel finds itself in a campaign against Hamas in Gaza, and you're looking for the approval of Mansour Abbas to launch operations against, uh, against Hamas. How can, that, how can that be the case? Um, and I mean, and similarly, the, it's angered some people within the Likud, some people within the, the religious Zionist party have said, you know, how, how dare us, you know, it's better for us to, to lose the elections completely than rely on these Islamists, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there is, there is a real tension there. Um, for Mansour Abbas, for his sake, when I was listening to him last night, he said his only red line is that he wouldn't be part of a government where Ben Gvir was a minister. Now that leaves a lot of other kind of, uh, of, of uh, wiggle room gray area of what you can have them in a part of a coalition and effectively join. I still find it, I mean, bottom line, it's still incredibly difficult to believe that it's possible for the far right Kahanis, neo Kahanis and Islamists to sit together under an Netanyahu government, but he is the magician and anything's possible. So we'll have to wait and see. Okay. I've got one final question. So while um, while Richard is is dealing with my last question, if people want to write their questions in the Q and A, um, and we'll we'll bring in the audience in a second. My my final question is um, uh, that Labour and Moretz both seem to have overcome the very low low ebb that they found themselves in last year, where they only got a combined total of six seats, and then uh, Gesher got an extra one in the kind of um, grouping they were in last time. Um, does this mean that there's life still in the uh, in, in the, the, the left-wing Zionist movement? Uh, yeah, the tradition that, that basically founded the state, is that still, still a going concern? Um, maybe, <laughs> is the, the short answer. It's possible that they have, we'll see a, a revival after they were, they were written off kind of as anachronistic to, uh, to, the, to the historical uh, development. I mean, there was something a little bit strange when you see kind of the, uh, the exuberance of, being, of, of the Labour Party celebrating seven seats um, as they did on Tuesday night. When, as you, as you correctly say, this was the party that founded the country that is used to winning 20, 30, even in its historical peak, uh, 40 seats. Um, and so seven seats seems in the historical context not that impressive, but the more recent perspective is that they were written off as a as a, as a, as a Finnish force, and I think a lot of the credit goes to Merab Michaeli, 
the new party leader. She has absolutely um, revitalized the, the country, given the both in terms of an ideological direction of kind of campaigning with the two flags of, of authentic uh, um, social democratic uh, policies and platforms, and also raising the flag of the peace process with the Palestinians as well. And that the, those two dual flags of the traditional emblems of the Labour Party is now gaining momentum. She made a point of saying how many young supporters she'd had. Um, a quip came back that, you know, that with the deadlock uh, look at, looking like a scenario, um, these young people may well get a chance to, uh, to exercise their vote sooner, sooner rather than later. But she does feel galvanised. She does feel that there is kind of the momentum is with the party. And that's absolutely what they'll look to build on in future elections. Great. OK, I'm going to start going through questions that i've had um uh in the um uh, in the chat who are the so-called kahanists so the kahanists are, are basically um within the religious zionists it's a it's a three-party technical block which includes the talent smotrich of the uh, national union um and uh, itamar bengvir of the jewish power and it's and it's Itamar, and the third faction is is Noam, which is kind of a, a quasi Haredi, ultra orthodox, homophobic uh, party. And Itamar Bengvir is kind of a, a a proud descendant, if you like, of the of the neo kahanists and uh, and takes similar very uh, robust hardline right wing uh, right wing views. Um, if you if, if people recall. Um, his former partner, um, Baruch Mazel, in previous elections has been banned from running because of kind of, of direct connections with, uh, with, with, with uh, Kahana and, uh, and, and uh, the Kahanist movement. Itzmar Ben-Gvir, as a lawyer, has perhaps uh, um, kind of distanced himself just enough to be able to get over the, over the legal barrier of being able to run, but still holds those views. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's very difficult and problematic for a lot of the other Israeli political uh, spectrum. Okay. What impact does this all have on the peace process with the Palestinians? Is the result likely to advance or inhibit the process or have little effect at all? Well, again, we, 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 I have to deal with a few kind of um, ifs and caveats and speculation. But if the scenario, kind of scenario B that I painted, is that Yela Pid is able to form a, a government, and again, heavy caveat that it's not clear at all Though, even though he might get the recommendation whether he can really form a government, then yes, we could see a renewal of, uh, of, the, of those talks again in a very, I think, uh, realistic and, and slow process. You need, to, you need to build up a lot of trust. It also, by the way, depends on the political dynamic on the other side as well. The Palestinians are due to have their own election later this year, so I don't think anything is going to happen before then. But if the, if the, if, if the stars align that a if, and these are, these are all big ifs, um, a pragmatic leadership develops on the Palestinian side that shows an interest and a willingness to return to talks. And Lapid is running a, uh, a, a kind of a broad centrist kind of from center left to center right government, then it's possible that, uh, that they could start to slowly kind of refine their way back to the talks. But uh, as, you've heard, as you've heard in my answer, there are a lot of ifs there. Um, and I think if we look on the other side, if it's a Netanyahu government, then we are not expecting any uh, any significant developments there. Um, just a preemptive question that we sometimes discussed about kind of the US involvement, because I think it's very important on this question specifically as well, is that it's uh, that uh, uh, President Biden, not only is it true that he's had plenty of other things to worry about without uh, getting too involved in the Middle East, 
he is he is deliberately during this election campaign not made any statements with regard to the peace process. Although it's highly likely that when a government is formed, both both in Jerusalem and in and in Ramallah as well, then the U.S. it's also in their kind of traditional interest of a democratic president to also encourage the parties some, some in some format back to the negotiation table. So that should also be a factor that may be coming down the line, but we're not there yet. Okay. Um, there's a question asking about this very multi-party system that you get with proportional representation. Is there anyone in Israel suggesting a change to a voting system that would reduce the number of parties that get into the Knesset? So the short answer is no. It's not really on the, uh, on the agenda here, as surprising as it may be. Um, there have been, again, to give a little bit of historical context, um, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, they tried to solve this problem by creating direct elections for the prime minister. So that when you went to vote, you voted for your party and then a separate vote for the prime minister. What actually happened, and that would be kind of the idea of giving more governability. What in fact happened was the opposite, that because people had their vote for a prime minister, they were then, the, the parliament became even more um, uh, factionalized and 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 uh, and um, fragmented because because people felt the, the the luxury of going with their own prime minister candidate and then their own niche party. So that that was tried and was and was parked after three attempts. The other idea of raising the threshold again has been tried five years ago. It went up from two and a half percent to three point two five. There's some people talk outside the parliamentary system about raising it further and kind of cutting off the small parties to insist that they kind of merge into blocks. That may happen event eventually, but, uh, but I think that the, we're in a unique situation here because of the prime minister and his legal, his legal issue that has made such a big block of the, uh, of the political spectrum unpalatable for so many, whilst otherwise, as it could under a different leadership, you could well imagine it forming, forming differently. So until we're out of this current epoch, I don't expect any changes. The one issue that has been discussed by various leaders is to put term limits on a prime minister. Um, and again, that's something that may or may not uh, may, may or may not uh, come back to uh, to be revisited. OK, do the results suggest that Israel's impressive covid vaccination program didn't particularly particularly help Netanyahu to get more votes? Yes. Bottom line, I think that's ab absolutely what we should read into the results that, uh, that both for good and bad. I mean, Netanyahu made a big play during his campaign about the successful vaccinations that uh, that he and he alone brought. Um, and, and and on the other side, because we came out of lockdown here uh, just a week before the votes, people's memories are very short that forget all the kind of perhaps mishandling of the uh, of the coronavirus over the last year. So I don't think it negatively affected Netanyahu or gave him that boost uh, um, that he was looking for. So bottom line, it didn't really have that much impact. So it appears. Yeah. Um, OK, uh, I've got a question now. Um, Lapid and Lieberman ha have strong problems with the religious parties. But would you agree that the religious parties are actually adept at maximising their position? And there is a history that they used to join left wing governments. Uh, do you think there's any chance that they would switch sides? OK, there's a lot of a lot of questions there. You might have to repeat uh, repeat some of it. But on the last on, on the last part, I mean, the the ultra orthodox definitely have been as a as a political model incredibly successful as uh, to, to pivot beyond their beyond their their uh, their their role and and size within the population group to maximize their political impact. In fact, when we were, we were talking about uh, Mansour Abbas and Ram, 
he uses Chasse as the as the blueprint for how you do that and kind of play identity politics and uh, and be then pragmatic enough to enter into mainstream politics. So there is a there is a lesson there. Um, it's a very interesting question that we don't yet know the answer to with whether how strong are the uh, are the anti-ultra-orthodox tendencies of someone like Liebman. And by the way, although Lapid has been there in the past, and people may remember Lapid's father, Tommy Lapid, who ran on a one single issue about being anti-ultra-orthodox, Lapid, in, in the same way that he's been statesmanly and, uh, and moderate, has refused to kind of go on the attack. Well, on against the ultra orthodox, perhaps out of political pragmatism, knowing that he may well need to bring them in. And uh, and again, if you look back at the numbers, if you were to bring the ultra orthodox away from the Likud camp, then that is a clear way, numerically at least, of how you solve solve this conundrum and create a government. And then it'll be a question for for Lieberman, in, in particular, to have to ask himself which is uh, which is his the higher principle being being part of a government or or, or being or being left out. Um, but certainly those 16 votes of the uh, of the two ultra-orthodox parties, if they were to shift across, and uh, as I said, that's why our, our our infographic before only showed about recommendations to the to the president, because at this stage, they're certainly going to recommend Netanyahu. But it's not inconceivable that in order to avoid a fifth election, the ultra-orthodox are also brought in to the, uh, to the government. Are there less ir- irreconcilable differences on the right-wing side that need to be overcome to for, for Netanyahu to form a coalition than there are right I mean certainly yeah side. certainly the the right-wing the right-wing bloc is certainly more um homogenous and uh, and kind of clearly identified within a with, within within a, an ideological camp um the question here is kind of again in the same context of the Israeli Arabs um being 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 brought into a a potential coalition which would also include Kind of centre-right parties as well is that people need to show that ideological flexibility in order to kind of to work in the national interest to kind of to be fair and reasonable in the allocation of resources and and to kind of to park the ideological differences for another day but to but to deal with the main issues of coming out of the, the coronavirus re, reinvigorating the economy etc and it should be in everyone's interest to be doing those things so those non-ideological issues um, it's the hope that they will take the precedence and therefore you could have quite a di- ideologically diverse. And again, if it's the case of bringing the Arabs in and the right-wing parties, incredibly diverse, unprecedented diversity. Again, we're going to wait and see if that sort of government can be formed. OK. Who do you think will be the prime minister in two months' time? Yes. Well, um, yeah, yes. We're going to um, hold you to this and come come back and... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah it's, it's it's uh, uh, better people than me have failed to answer this question. I think it's the uh, you know this is the million dollar question that we just we just don't know yet um, where the where the variables will go. What uh, if first of all if if Lapid is given the chance to form the first the first government, if uh, um, Ronnie, perhaps you could show that uh, that second slide again just to kind of to talk through those uh, so we understand those numbers. Um, but uh, but but if if Lapid um, is able to is able to get the uh, the backing and the support, and according to this numbers, he would need the support of uh, of Ram as well to take him over to sixty one. Which, as I said, the the Lapid and, and Mansour Abbas are already in conversations together, um, and they and and judging by kind of the the angry response from some of the the Likudniks, it may be more convenient. And as I said, Ram is not I, for Ram's perspective. You know, the, the, a general Zionist or a right-wing Zionist is, is still a Zionist. 
So it's still kind of going over the breaking the Rubicon for from his perspective. If Ram gets over and actually represents uh, Lapid, then 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 he's in then he's in the driving seat. Um, and then it's a game about pulling potentially pulling Yamina and the Orthodox into a working coalition. Hand of my heart, do I think that's possible? And, and Lapid's going to be going to be prime minister in two months' time. I can't go that far as to uh, as to really foresee it. So if I'm if I was betting with a if I was betting, I'd say that we'd be in a traditional government and we may be maybe facing a, a fifth election. Um, but as I said, there are still those still those variables still to come. And don't forget, these are still not the final final results. If one vote either way can can really can really shift it and make us and have a significant difference still. What's the timescale for the uh, corruption trial that Netanyahu is facing and is and any appeal or whatever? What's wh wh where is that process? So, so, so the High Court delayed it as they have delayed other parts of the uh, of the of the process because they didn't want to directly uh, um, seen it as 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 contaminating the uh, the electoral process. Although, again, similar to the earlier to the earlier question um, about the coronavirus, I think for for most people, most Israelis, they've already priced in the fact that the prime minister is is uh, is on trial, and in their minds, he's either guilty or kind of or completely innocent. And so they're not, there's not much movement there on the political spectrum. In terms of the practicalities, April the 5th is the date that's been set to start the evidentiary stage of his trial. And that process could last months or even years. Um, so, uh, so it's in the, it, it will, the prime minister will have to appear three times a week in court. The, the, the Israeli media will be having a, a field day covering the, uh, the, uh, the, all the witness um, statements and, uh, and, ev and evidence that they'll be given and highlighting it and it will be spun appropriately by various uh, political actions and it will dominate the Israeli, the, the, the Israeli media front for, the, for months to come until people kind of uh, get, get bored of it. Um, the only caveat to that is the potential um, that either side could, could, could start their own um, um, parliamentary proceedings at the same time. Obviously, if Netanyahu was to be able to get to 61, then there are, part, uh, there are parties within his coalition who have talked about the idea of, uh, of, of passing a law to give him temporarily immunity or kind of or freeze the trial until after he's finished serving. Um, they look, these now look far, far further away than we were on Tuesday night um, with Netanyahu not having a guarantee 61. And as I mentioned before, there is a possibility that the, with a parliamentary majority the other way could pass um, radical led legislation that would ban someone under indictment from being asked to serve as prime minister or even run as a, as a prime minister, depending on, on how they want to word the legislation. So that could also uh, affect, uh, affect it in, in, in parallel. But bottom line is it will get, get underway 5th of April and it's due to last several months, if not years. What impact the change of uh, a president in the US has had? Because really Netanyahu was quite heavily invested in the relationship with, with, with Trump. And that was giving him kind of uh, diplomatic cover and the Israeli public were perceived that as you know, a benefit of having Netanyahu as, as, as prime minister's relationship with the US president. Um, where, where does that all stand uh, now that yeah, there's a switch to, uh, to the Biden administration, which is clearly coming from a, a different place ideologically in terms of the peace process? So... Uh, so as I mentioned before, Biden's been very careful not to uh, not to impose himself within the Israeli democratic uh, process. And I think it's reasonable to assume he may have his own personal preference uh, for a non-Netanyahu candidate is certainly 
not not impossible. Um, but if, if if either way, if Netanyahu remains prime minister or it is Lapid, I think that uh, U.S. relations are kind of are solid and entrenched and enshrined across various uh, levels of, of both government and uh, intelligence communities and uh, and the military and defense establishments. So that you know ties ties will remain strong regardless. And don't forget the way that Netanyahu navigated the Obama administration, it actually played to his advantage because as opposed to your absolute right, that he was able to reap the, reap the rewards of a Trump administration, but he also didn't fare too badly under Obama either by, by going head to head with him and, and challenging him and proving that there is a, an Israeli leader that can stand up to the, to the, pre, the presidents of the, uh, of the world's most powerful country. Um, the, the sense is, by the way, so far indication that Netanyahu does not want to take that same approach with Biden. Um, we should be also be clear that whoever is prime minister, the top issue on the agenda is how do you combat uh, the Iranian threat, both in uh, both in their entrenchment across Syria and Lebanon, but also their nuclear program and their ballistic uh, missiles program. And on that level, we again, I can I can I would be confident that whoever the government of the day is will be led by the professionals on the Israeli side, by the security establishment. By the way, the first inter-Israel-US committee just met a week and a half ago. And at this stage, it was about sharing intelligence. And at least the, uh, the feedback that I've heard from the meeting and seen, and seen reported, that it was a very um, productive and positive meeting um, between the Israel and the US uh, government. But in terms of the, the intelligent picture, it was almost identical. They share the same assessment. That doesn't mean that going forward there aren't going to be challenges, and the prescriptive measures that various the both governments say may not it may not coalesce exactly, and there may be future challenges. But at least as a starting position, their reading of the intelligence map is is meant to be the same. So that kind of bodes well with whoever takes over. Okay, I've got another question about Netanyahu uh, here. Given, yeah, he's state you know love him or hate him a massive figure on the global stage are there any politicians coming up through the ranks that have the potential to be a big international states person in the way that netanyahu is um it's a good question and i think it's, it's very difficult to answer because you know netanyahu when he when he started um in back in and uh, 1996 as a as a as a young former former diplomat you know, no one would have expected that uh, the longevity and uh, two decades later, he would be able to punch above his weight and have Israel so so dominant on the uh, on the world stage. So I think uh, my assessment, at least, is that this is largely a function of time. You know, that you need to you need to put the years in to get to, to reach that that status. Any is any is any prime minister who's starting off has to build up that credibility and uh, and, 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 a, and a name for themselves. And quite clearly, because Netanyahu has now been in charge for 12 years straight, um, as well as his, his, his time in his first, first term in the 90s. But 12 years as a solid prime minister continu continuously means that he has, he's, he's brought up that name, name recognition and brand recognition and has, that, and has that status. So I think it's unfair to expect any of the up, up and coming stars to have that immediate uh, transformative effect on the world stage. They'll need to put their time in and know their place and kind of work through the uh, the, the kind of the conventional methods of uh, of diplomatic behaviour um, and hopefully uh, whoever they are kind of kind of represent Israel's interests. Okay, 
Is there any concern amongst Likud MKs over the potential of being in a coalition with Ben Gavir? Um, a great question, but uh, no, party discipline is as such that if they do have any have any have any concerns, then um, then they haven't said it publicly. Um, party party discipline on that. I mean, there may well be people that have host uh, private opinions, and we could uh, we can speculate about who they may be. Um, but no, no one has gone public. Interestingly, just yesterday, when the idea of getting support from the Ram uh, Islamist Party came up, there was a distinction that different Likud MKs, when they were interviewed on the Israeli media, gave very different answers. And 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 one said, you know, everything's plausible, and you know, we're welcome, and we'll and we'll we'll take all the support. And others have said categorically, no, that this is a this is a red line, and that it, it's not possible that the Likud Party would sit with, uh, you know, in their framing terrorists or terrorist supporters. So that's kind of seen as a far more divisive issue. I dare say that a lot of the Kudniks do not love the idea of getting into uh, into bed with Ben Gvir and, and those, but uh, political needs must. And so if the because Prime Minister Netanyahu was so publicly endorsing it and encouraging that union, no, no liquid MPs have come out and spoken against it. Okay. What are the main reasons for the sharp decline up until this election uh, of uh, Avada, the Labour Party. Is it, uh, is, is there something in changing demographics in Israel that's caused this or is it all uh, political decisions that they've taken that have, have led them into a downward spiral? Um, it's a big question and Luke, you're probably well, well versed to answer this as well with your expertise in, uh, in Israeli Labour Party politics. But I think there are, there are short term and long term factors and the, the longer term factors go back, I suppose, to the, the, the failure of Ehud Barak and his government when they were unable to deliver the, the peace process. And instead, again, this is the this is how Israeli Israeli history or society has kind of has interpreted these events. But I don't think it's particularly historically accurate. But he was he was recognized with kind of going all out for this peace deal and then failing. And then the second intifada and the and all the, the horrific terrorism that followed was broadly blamed on the left. The, uh, the the Israeli right were able to say, you know, we 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 pulled out of we pulled out of Lebanon again. That was Ehud Barak's doing, and we got Hezbollah. We pulled out of uh, of Gaza. That was Eric Sharon's doing as Kadima, and uh, and we got to Hamas rockets. So the the left wing, the, the traditional left wing approach to uh, to reconciliation and land for peace was widely discredited, which led to a long term kind of rejection of those politics. And then you have some kind of there's there are personality aspects as well. If you recall, just from the last leader, Amir Peretz, with his big bushy moustache, which he shaved off in an election campaign to say, read my lips, I will not sit in a Netanyahu government. And then six months later, finds himself as Minister of, uh, of Industry and Economy in the Netanyahu government. The credibility was, uh, was shot. There is also a kind of a, a fascinating aspect of Labour Party politics, whereby, according to their in-house constitution, and again, this is in the framework of them being the leadership party. If ever they lose an election or don't become the uh, part of the government, it automatically um, um, brings on 14 months later a primary for the leadership. And so that's why we've had over the last 20 years over a dozen different party, um, people leading the party. And there is continuous uh, cannibalization of the leader because of this clause in their, in their constitution. If you compare that, by the way, to the Likud party and its predecessor, the, the Khirut party, they've had four leaders in 75 years. 
I mean, that's it. Sorry, five five leaders in seventy five leaders. We start with Jabotinsky. They've had they've had Begin, Shamir, Shawan, and Bibi, and that's it. Um, and uh, and I said in that in a twenty year period, the, the the Labour Party have had at least at least double that. And so that's also partly a factor. And then finally, yes, there are demographic changes um, that we'll see kind of more and more with, uh, with, with people responding again to the uh, rejectionism of the Palestinians have moved more to the right, more kind of uh, cynical of any, of, of any uh, negotiated process. The growth of the ultra-Orthodox community as well has shifted the balance. Um, and so it's a real uphill challenge for the Labour Party to regain relevance. But as I said, they're now under strong leadership. And so there is a chance that they could... Uh, they, they, they could develop further. So, final, final question. What will the absence of a stable government in the short term mean for Israeli society, particularly coming out of the COVID crisis? And I also, I guess there's, you know, is there an economic impact of not passing a, bud, a state budget for, for a couple of years? Yeah, I think the, I think the economic and, and the kind of socioeconomic impact of this, uh, of this deadlock is the, is the most is the most significant aspect. I think Israeli Israeli politics people Israelis are used to it. The kind of the the nature of it, and although there is kind of there was a large part of apathy through this campaign, the very fact that the the last government wasn't able to pass a budget, in fact, hasn't had a budget for two years, compounded by the problem of the coronavirus, is a real dereliction of duty. And just to kind of to emphasise the point, this really affects kind of. The weakest and the and the poorest amongst Israeli society. That there are all sorts of welfare organisations, um, medical institutions, and and education um, uh, um, community organisations that don't have a budget but aren't able to operate because they don't know what their budget is, and that's kind of affecting the weakest in society. And that's been the that that's been the biggest uh, casualty of this uh, of this political deadlock. Um, and one is uh, one can only be optimistic that. Uh, there will be a development and that they'll be able to get a coherent budget on board and, uh, and start to make improvements in people's lives.